And you can also be looking for Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to start today. Matthew chapter 2. Well, this sermon actually started last week, but don't worry. If you weren't here last week, today stands on its own, but it, it also continues. So we're going to start by doing a little review. The sermon is called Six Ways That We Humans Have Responded to Jesus. And down below it says, from the worst to the best. So we handled the worst, and we went to bad, and then we went to started off poorly, but kind of redeemed themselves. That's who we covered last week, and that's one, two, and three in your notes. So I'm just basically going to read these and uh, just kind of stir your memory. So Herod was the worst. It was King Herod, remember him. So if, you don't, if you're not familiar, then go back and read the stories in Scripture. But from Herod, we learn that getting upset with God when we, when, he, when we think he's taking something away from us only leads to greater conflict with others. Now, if you know the story, that's a severe understatement. His conflict with others led, led to a, a murderous rampage against small children. And, and, you know, I granted to you that none of you have probably been involved or are planning a murderous rampage against small children, so we had to back it down a little bit. We had to realize that his issue was that he had gotten to be king. He had really earned his kingship. He had plotted and pleaded and coerced and probably bribed, and he got to be king, and he wasn't going to let it go. And that was the problem, was he thought God was taking that away from him. And so he got disturbed, and it led to conflict. It also leads to acting out in ways that do not honor God when we do not get our way. And that's what happened. He, the, the, the wise men didn't do what he wanted them to do. And he didn't get to deal with the situation. And it, wound, it, it escalated to that murderous rampage. And so we talked about how we're like Herod sometimes and narrowed it down to this. Our sin, like Herod's, is selfishness and pride. So if our response to Jesus is to say, no, I don't think so, that doesn't fit into my plans... That doesn't make me happy. It's not going where I want to go. If there's a lot of I's and a lot of me's in the conversation, and we say, no, that's not the way it's going to be. We're going to go with plan B, which is my plan. That's a terrible response to Christ. It will lead to a series of bad choices and a series of consequences. And it, it will lead us down a path where we're going to do things we regret and probably get us into some trouble. So that was a very bad response to, to, to Jesus. So number two, we stepped out of the Christmas story. We talked about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teacher of the law. These were basically the religious government of the day. They, they ran the temple. They ran worship. They made the rules for sacrifice. They made the rules that everybody lived by. They walked around checking to see if you were living by the rules everyone else made up. They were the religious and people in charge and since the Jewish nation was a religious nation, they were even more in charge in some ways than Herod. So from the Jewish leadership, we learned that when God speaks or teaches something other than our traditions have taught us, we should not respond with jealousy, aggressive personal attacks, and slander. That's what they did. This also leads to acting out ways that do not honor God and places us in isolation from and in opposition to the truth. So, so they, they became all on their own standing against God, and we know that didn't work out for them very well. Number three, moving towards the 
not great, but able to recover was Zechariah. If you remember the story, Zechariah was in the temple. Uh, an angel appeared to him. This is, I love this part of the story. An angel appears to him and says, um, Blessed are you. Your, your, your prayers have been answered. Your wife's going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, and he's going to help change the world. Makes this great announcement. And Zechariah's response is, No, no, we're too old. This, this can't be. So an angel appears in the temple, makes this announcement from God. He didn't respond to the, your son's going to change the world, he's going to be the forerunner to Christ, the second most anticipated birth in Jewish folklore. It's going to be great. No, he focused on, hey, I don't know, Mom, we're pretty old. And then Gabriel's response, which is my favorite part, he looks right at me and goes, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Like, I know what I'm talking about. And so that took place. So Zechariah's first response to the message of the Messiah and the first response to his, his message from God was, no, that can't be. All right, so in your notes. Zechariah let his life circumstances, the fact that he was old and his wife was old, he let his life's circumstances blind him from his spiritual circumstances. He looked around and said, we're too old to have a son. God looked at him and said, you're going to have a son. So the two conflicted, and he got stuck on his own circumstances. He did not trust God because he could not see for himself how God's plan could possibly work out. And that was a little harsh because we can all identify with that, if we're honest. We have trouble seeing how God's plans are going to work out in my circumstances. And, and we will say to God, no, that's not going to work. Continuing, unfortunately, after meditation on God's message and watching the example of his wife Elizabeth, he was able to embrace the mission God gave him to raise and prepare the final prophet who proclaimed the immediate coming of the Messiah. And, of course, we know that child to be John the Baptist. So we've gone from the worst to bad to, to really okay, ended well, didn't start great, but ended well. Now we're going to go to number four. This is a good response. We're working our way to the best. This is good. Number four, just write in that line, Magi, M-A-G-I. Well, if you don't like that, write wise men, okay? So the wise men probably heard, you know, we three kings of Orient are, we've heard that song, we've seen the postcards, they're on a lot of the, the greeting cards we send out. The wise men are part of the story. They saw a star, they followed the star, they had that conversation with Herod, they found the baby, they worshipped the baby, they gave their gifts, and then they departed. That's their part of the story. But what was their response? I want to zero in on their response. What did they do and what did they say? So in Matthew 2.2, 2, this is in your notes, you can reference it in your own Bible, it says, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's significant because they didn't walk up to Herod and say, is there any chance that a baby's been born? Is there any chance that the Messiah has arrived? They didn't show up asking questions. They showed up with a declaration. They said, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Their purpose was to worship. 
So they not only saw the star, they knew who it belonged to, they knew it was all about, they came, and their, 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 their plan was to worship. Okay, now, the Magi, if you kind of know where they were, I'll tell you who they, they were in a minute. They were kingmakers, and, and they would be kind of the topping, uh, the, the topping on the ice cream, the, the frosting on the cake. They, when they showed up, and, and they said, yes, this is the future king, that kind of made it all official. They had that kind of authority and that kind of power, not because they were fierce or wielded swords. They just, they just had that type of influence that everyone recognized. So they were kingmakers. That's part of what got Herod upset. But they didn't come to declare him king. They came to worship him, which means they recognized that he was also the son of God. They recognized his deity. So these kingmakers showed up to recognize the king, but also to worship him. That tells us a lot about them. Who were the Magi? Well, historically, in your notes, the Magi were geographically located in Babylon and had served continuously through the reigns of many conquerors and kings. So, let me explain that. The Magi were a group of people, highly respected, renowned in their part of the world. They were, they were just this collection of people. They might you know, might call them a, a college faculty or whatever. They, they really didn't belong to any nationality anymore. At one time they did, but as conquerors came in and kings came in and, and the, the, the authority transferred from one country to another, one king to another, they stayed on the scene. And they just served whoever was in charge and they were seen as wise men and no one would get rid of them because who wants to get rid of the smart people who are dedicated to serve me? So in their wisdom, they pledged their allegiance to whoever was in charge. So when Nebuchadnezzar was in charge, they were aligned to him. When Darius was in charge, they were aligned to him. Whoever was in charge, they, were, they served him. And whoever came in kept them. That was a practice. So these magi had served lots of kings and lots of kingdoms. Now that's, that's history. That's secular history. We find that from, from archaeology and all that kind of stuff. Now we're going to pull some biblical history into the story. When Daniel left Israel, he was a captive, he was a slave, and he was taken to Babylon. You remember that he went through some testing and some training, and when he went before, the, before King Nebuchadnezzar, he and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were found to be superior to all the rest. So they were given special jobs, and Daniel in particular was, was elevated up. He eventually, he was in charge of the Magi. He was in charge of the wise men and the advisors. So Daniel became in charge, and he also went from regime to regime, ruler to ruler, nation to nation. Every time someone came in and took over, something would happen. Daniel would rise back up to the top, and he was put in charge again. So for decades, like maybe 70 to 80 years, Daniel was in the leadership of or in charge of this group of people, among other things. And so what we have joining those two histories together, you can fill in that last line, it seems as if they were of the school of Daniel. So Daniel came in, he brought the scriptures, he brought the, the prophets, the Psalms, he brought 
He brought the Jewish Bible with him. He brought that into the teaching of the wise men. And so this group of people, these wise men, these magi, had learned and believed what Daniel had taught them. We know that because they were the only ones looking for a sign. It says, we saw his star when it rose. You know who didn't see the star? Herod. You know who didn't see the star? The high priest. You know who didn't see the star? The Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. You know who didn't see the star? The Jewish nation. These guys had learned and understood the prophecies and were waiting for the Messiah. They knew it was time. They didn't know the day, but they knew it was time, so they were paying attention. When they saw the star, they put two and two together and said, Ah, there's the sign. It's in the right place over near Jerusalem. It's at the right time. We've been waiting for the Messiah. And, and they put it together, and they left believing. They didn't show up to say, Is is there a king born of the Jews? Is there some Messiah thing going on? Do you guys, did you guys see the star? They showed up and they said, we saw his star. We saw it when it rose and we come to worship. So, so these guys were on, on task. They knew what was happening. There, there was no surprise announcement to them. So practically, back to your notes, they had no question or doubt about anything that had just happened. Now, Matthew 2, 10 and 11, we read about what happened when they got there. After they had spoken to Herod, after they had come to Bethlehem and found the baby in the house, it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Remember, they left Jerusalem, they saw the star, so they knew where to go. They were overjoyed. They're excited. It's, we're so close. We're almost there. We see the star. It's over the town. Uh, maybe there was a light coming down. Maybe there was some indicator with the star. But they knew where to go. They were excited. They were overjoyed because what they had waited for, what they had believed in, was finally going to happen. And one verse later, when they saw the child, they bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped. They got there. They gave their gifts. They bowed and they worshipped which is sort of odd because they were worshiping a baby. They were praying to a baby. They were thanking God for a baby. They were recognizing the baby as God. And Jesus didn't stand up and bless them or anything and say, you know, thanks for coming, I appreciate it. He, he just laid there, but they worshiped him because they knew who he was. They knew he was the Messiah, the one that was promised. So their response was as soon as they knew where it was, they started to move. And when they got there, they bowed down and worshipped. So here's the question. When you learn truth of God's word, do you take it as undeniable and unquestionable truth? They did. They, they didn't wait around to see if anyone else noticed. They didn't wait to see if there was an announcement or an invitation. When they saw the star... They packed up, and they left. And they knew exactly who they were looking for, the Messiah. They might not have known he was a baby. Well, they said he was born, so they knew he was a baby. They knew what they were looking for, and they left. They, they understood God's word, and they took it as undeniable and unquestionable truth. 
The next step is do you obey and respond? Do you obey and respond appropriately? I know the truth. I believe the truth. Does it change my life? Does it change my thinking? Does it change my behavior? Does it change my motives? Does it cause me to act in a certain way, uh, to look at people in a certain way, to respond to people in a certain way? Does it cause me to see them like God sees them? The undeniable, unquestionable truth of God's word should change my life. So the question is, has it? And when God delivers on the promise, when the truth is proven, when it's made evident, do you give him honor and worship? Do you give God glory? Do you you say, wow, God, that was awesome. Thank you for being involved in my life. Thank you for making that happen. Or, Or do we say, yeah, I was pretty sure I could pull that off on my own. That would be dangerous. We need to give God the credit. So they had a good response. And, and when I say good, I don't want you to think there's anything wrong with it. It was actually a, a, a good response. But someone has to be good and someone has to be really good. So I'm giving credit to really good, number five in your notes, to the shepherds. Shepherds had a really good response. So we've sung the song. We know the story. They were, they were in the field by night watching their sheep. Here's a little bit of the story you may not know. This was more than likely, I mean, when I say more than likely, like, we almost all agree, and, and kind of everyone thinks it, but it can't be proven, so we have to say more than likely. So more than likely, this group of shepherds were a special group of shepherds who watched a special flock of sheep. What does that mean? Well, Bethlehem is very near Jerusalem, and the, the sacrifices required very particular sheep without blemish, one year old, a, a lot of requirements. And most people could not maintain a one-year-old sheep without any blemishes and whatnot. And so they had a special group of shepherds that kept a special flock, and their job was to keep them pure so that they were ready to be taken to the temple for a sacrifice or anything else they needed. Now, this special group of shepherds doesn't mean they were any more accepted. The shepherds were low-class unacceptable group of people. They weren't allowed into the temple because they were constantly unclean. Okay, they, were, they had cooties. And so they weren't allowed in the temple. They were, they were not a group of people that anyone wanted to be associated with or hang out with. They had a job to do because they needed a job. And so they, they watched these sheep. The sheep were special. The shepherds were just there to watch them. So they were in this field watching, watching over these sheep. The interesting thing, that the, the reason that is interesting is because they were, they were watching the sheep that would go to the temple to be a sacrifice. And the angel comes and says, hey, guess what? There's a baby born, and we know that that baby would go to the temple to be a sacrifice one day. So that's the connection. And isn't it great how God went to the, the lowest in society to introduce them to the baby? So here's, here's the reaction, uh, or the response of the shepherds. In Luke 2.15, after they're told where Jesus is and how to find him, their response is, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. The angel says, hey, he's in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes. You'll find him in a manger. They said, let's go. They didn't discuss it. They just said, let's go. And two verses later in Luke 2.17, after they had found the baby, it says, when they had seen him, they spread the word. So they, they heard, they went, they saw, and then they spread the word. 
So the response, the shepherds believed, verified, and then told others. They believed, verified, and told others. The angels spoke. They said, well, these are angels. They must be right. Let's go. They found what they were looking for, verified what they had been told. Then they went out and told others. So here's the question. Now that you have believed, and I'm specifically talking to those who have believed in Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven. Now that you have believed and God's truth has been verified because your life has verified it. After you give your life to Christ, things change. You recognize those changes. That's the verification. So you believe God's truth has been verified. Are you obeying the Great Commission? They were supposed to go see the baby in the manger. We are supposed to take the baby to the people. The Great Commission says, make disciples, baptize them, and then disciple them. Teach them everything you have been, been taught. Are we doing that? Everything we do should, have, should touch that in some way. Alana's youth group, Sunday school, church, the, the cookies, uh, invitations to Easter. Everything we do should have, in one way or another, have the goal of seeing people accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. We should be praying for people to be saved. We should be praying for people to recognize who God is. We did that together this morning. After they're saved, after they have declared their faith, then we bring them into baptism where they make a very public announcement. They say to everyone, I'm saved. Here's how I got saved. I'm going to follow the Lord, and I'm going I'm to show you that I'm serious by getting in this tank of water, and I'm going to be baptized, and, and that's how everyone knows. And then after that, we disciple. Discipleship goes through this whole process where we teach them about God, about the Bible, how to live, how to make decisions, how to think. Are we doing that? We should be doing that. Here's what this response illustrates. It's a great illustration. The shepherd's response illustrates childlike faith. Childlike faith. The angel said, hey, there's a baby in a stable wrapped in swaddling clothes. You should go find him. The response, okay. They didn't say which stable. Uh, how do we know it's really him? Um, what are his parents' name? They just said, okay. And they went. In Matthew 18, 2, it says, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to be like children. You know, you think about a, a good relationship between a father and a child. You have grandkids, you have kids, neighbor kids. A good relationship you know, p- between a father and their child. That dad says something to the child. I promise I will. Or, did you know that? And whatever said next, that child hears it, embraces it, and believes it. That's the relationship we need to have with Jesus. We hear his truth. We recognize what he's saying. And then we, we just go with it. Childlike faith. These guys just went with it. And then when it was verified, they started telling everyone else about it. That was a really good response. That's the response we should have when we read something in the Bible, we understand a promise from Scripture, all that kind of stuff. Childlike faith. Number six, we go from really good to, oh, look, really good again. Number six is really good. You might look down and go, there's no number seven. There's no great. Well, obviously Mary and Joseph were the best. 
But we talk about them all the time, so we're not going to talk about them today. Number six is Simeon and Anna. You may not remember who Simeon and Anna are. Okay, so Jesus is born. He's born in Bethlehem. A certain number of days pass, and by the, by the uh, moral law of the day, the, the requirements of the temple, they had to show up at the temple, present Jesus to the priest. They had to do certain things, make a certain sacrifice, this kind of stuff. And so on the day that was, that was the correct day, they showed up. And while they're there, this really old man walks by. His name is Simeon. This old man, what makes him special is that he had been praying that the Messiah would come. He had been anticipating the Messiah. And something very special happened with him. The Holy Spirit promised him that he would see the Messiah before he died. Now, Simeon, very old, could have said, but I'm old. How can it be? But that's not the attitude we see Simeon having. Simeon just waited. And so, Joseph and Mary and Jesus meet Simeon. Simeon walks up, takes the child. I don't know if he just ran up and grabbed the baby, or if, or if he said, can I hold your baby? Or, where are you guys from? Hey, that's a cute baby. You know, I've done all those things. I love the babies. I don't know how he got him, but he held Jesus in his hands. It says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Which is how we would say, you, You've done what you promised, now I can die. That sounds kind of weird, but when you think of the promise, You will see the Messiah before you die. Simeon's response is, I've seen the Messiah, now I can die in peace. Not, I want to die now, or anything like that, but now I can die in peace. What he's really saying is, this is all I need. I've been praying for the Messiah, I've wanted the Messiah, you promised I would see the Messiah, now I have seen the Messiah as a baby, but that's good enough for me, that's all I need. That's all I need in life. So his response was, I believed your promise, and now you fulfilled it. That's all I need. So as soon as that scene plays out, he, he, says, some, he says some things as soon as that scene plays out. We go to 10 verses later, Luke 2, 38, and we meet Anna. Anna is a prophet. Not like Isaiah was a prophet, not like uh, uh, foretelling the future, writing scripture kind of prophet, but a prophet like a teacher. So... Anna got married when she was young. She was married for seven years. Her husband died, and she was a widow. Now, they married young. We don't know what, how old she was, but they married young. She was married seven years, and then she was a widow, probably in her early 20s still. And then she was a widow up until her, into her 80s. I think she was 84, 87, something like that. You can look it up. So she had been a widow for probably 60-plus years. And it says she served in the temple. What did she do? She taught the women and the children. She taught God's word. She faithfully taught God's word. And she also anticipated the coming of the Messiah. So as soon as the interaction with Simeon is done, he hasn't even left yet. She walks up. This is what it says. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. 
I don't think that meant she left and spoke to people. I think it means she started teaching anyone who was around. Hey, this is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. This is the one. The context of both of these, in your notes, Simeon and Anna, Simeon and Anna had a promise to lean on. Simeon had a personal promise. Anna had the promises from Scripture. They had a promise to lean on, and lean on it they did. So their interaction with Scripture, they knew Jesus was coming, and they were patiently waiting, anticipating the day. What does this illustrate? This illustrates faithfulness to the Scriptures and the promises given within. Faithfulness to the Scriptures. And, and, and so the obvious connection to us is that we have the Scriptures. We have far more Scripture than they did. And when we read it, and we read a promise, do we believe it? Do we take the actual words of Scripture, the plain and clear promises, and do we say, I believe that, and, and I'm just going to rest in this promise. I'm going to rest in this promise. I'll never be alone. God will hear every prayer that I pray. If he says no, that's because no was the best answer. If he moves me in a direction, even if it's uncomfortable, if he's moving me, I'll go because that's where he wants me to go. That's where I'm going to thrive. That's where he's going to use me. If, if I'm having something taken away, then it must need to be taken away. Am I just going to listen to God and, and believe it and live in that? that? That's a really good response to Christ. Here's some application from, from all this. Number one, like the Magi, if you know God's truth, act on it without question or doubt. Act on it. Put it into practice. Live it out in your life. Take your faith to work with you. Take your faith to your kids' softball, baseball, tr basketball, track practice. Take, take your faith on the road trip with you. Take your faith to the museum with you. Take your faith camping with you. Take your faith everywhere you go. Make sure you take your faith into your own home. Make sure your faith uh, guards your decisions and your thoughts. When you know God's truth, act on it. Number two, like the shepherds, when God gives you an undeniable message, accept it. Accept it. You know, not all of us get these undeniable messages, but, but I was, I was kind of reminded of two decades ago. I like saying that, but then I don't like saying that. <laughs> decades ago. Picture me as a college kid. I had long hair. I dressed cool. At least I thought I did. I'm in college. I'm planning to be an accountant. I have plans. I mean, I have plans far beyond accounting. And I'm used to getting good grades, and I'm used to being successful, and I'm sitting there, and I'm struggling in my classes, and I don't know what's going on. And over the course of about a month, I went from I have no idea what's going on to I know exactly what's going on. And in that month's time, I discovered, and I don't even know when it happened or how it happened. It's just all of a sudden I knew that God was calling me to be a youth pastor. Not just a pastor, but a youth pastor. And I went and talked to my counselor, and I talked to different people. I went and talked to my youth pastor. 
Finally, I talked to my parents, talked to my best friend, and, and every time I talked to somebody, it was just confirmed over and over again. That's, that's one of those undeniable messages. I knew in my heart, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God wanted me to be a pastor. And this whole accounting thing, all my plans, all of a sudden, didn't seem like that great of a plan. And I moved in that direction, and I've never regretted that. Not once have I regretted it. About ten years ago, God started to say to my heart, you know, you've been a good youth pastor, but you're getting old. You're slowing down. Remember the sleep, remember the all-nighter where you didn't make it all night? We're going to have to change. I have a plan. Are you on board? My answer, nope. Nope, I'm going to be the 90-year-old youth pastor that everyone thinks is still cool. That's my plan. God said, okay. And he kept working, and he kept working, and he kept working. About 10 years ago, I got to the point where I said, okay, God, I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll do what you want me to do. You just have to show me where that is. And I got a call from Dennis Blix. Hey, we're a small church. We don't have very many people. We're almost broke. Literally what he said. But we need a pastor. Would you like to talk to us? And I said... Uh, obviously, I need to talk to you because you guys are doing this all wrong. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. I said, I'm going to come. I'm going to help you guys out because you know what you're doing. You're never going to find a pastor. One month later, I'm the pastor. <laughs> and it was because God said, um, now that you're willing to go where I want you to go, this is where I want you to go. He had prepared the church for me, which was a decent-sized job, and he had prepared me for the church. And been here almost 10 years and no regrets. Sometimes God gives you an undeniable message. Sometimes it's not that big. Sometimes the undeniable message is, I want you to walk across the street and talk to your neighbor. I want you to invite them to church. And you know what that feels like, that undeniable message. And the only thing to do is accept it and respond. Childlike faith, like a child who's just been given a wonderful promise from a loving father. That you're not going to send me anywhere, that you're not going to protect me. You're not going to have me do anything that's not your plan. Give me an undeniable message. We're going to go. One more story, because it's just good. I don't know if you know or not, but my son is sitting here today, one of them. He's the one in between uh, my wife and my dad. Um, he went to Alaska on a mission trip, asking God, what do you want me to do? Kind of in his heart, he already knew what God wanted him to do, but he wanted God to be super clear. And he said, God, make it super clear. Well, God, being who he is, said, okay, you want to be super clear? I'll make it super clear. And Daniel came back saying, okay, God, I'll be a worship pastor. And, and that's what he's pursuing. Do we know what the future looks like? No, we don't. Do we know what kind of church he's going to be in? No, we don't. Do we know if he's going to have to have two or three jobs? No, we don't. Do we know anything? No. But an undeniable message came from God. How should we respond? We accept it and we move forward, living that life. And that's what he's doing. And we'll see how that works out. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Number three, if you have in your favor, if all you have in your favor is God's word and his promises, let that be enough. If that's all you got, 
You don't have any friends supporting you. You don't have financial support. You don't have resources. If, if you got nothing but God's word and his promises, let it be enough. Rest in those promises. At that point, simply trust God to do what he's promised. And I know that's easier said than done. I know. I've been there. Easier said than done. What am I supposed to do? Same as last week. We're ending in the exact same place. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord. Trust his word. Trust his promises. Trust that he loves you. Trust that he has a plan. Trust that he's going to move things in a good direction even if we can't see it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at your limitations. Don't look at your resources. Trust in the Lord. In all your ways, submit to him. Obey him. Follow him. Let him be in charge. He will make your path straight, which is, which is, a, is a colloquialism. I said it, I think. Of the day, meaning your life's going to be better. It's going to be more meaningful. It's going to have more purpose. And because of all that, you're going to enjoy it. That's what that means. So I hope there's a response in there that you can either correct or you can grow into. I know I've enjoyed this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for your son, your word, your promises. Lord, I just want to kind of end the day where we started earlier. If something we have said has triggered a thought, triggered a question about you, may that question be answered before the day ends today. May any question that, that comes up, may, may there be someone to ask and someone to answer. And Lord, we would simply rejoice if at the end of the day someone has given their life to you, accepted you as a Savior, had their sins forgiven. And Lord, I pray that the, the message would ripple out from our building that there is a proper way to respond to Jesus. And I pray that we would also be an example of that. In your in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.